like you can't even get on our roadmap unless what you're asking for can be turned into a problem statement. But if you can't articulate the problem, they can articulate the problem, I can articulate the problem, it's not making it on the list. So we're not gonna go after it. Welcome to Go to Market, a series of discussions with product managers focused on core product skills, career management, and the experiences that have made them successful at companies big and small. I'm Mark, a PM at Google. And I'm Stuart, a PM at Benchling. We started this podcast to learn from people smarter than us, and now we're sharing the insights that we've gathered from talking to other PMs. I'm super excited to have Ben on the show. We've known each other for a number of years. He's one of the very first people I met in San Francisco, actually. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been one I've been waiting for for a while. Uh, you've had a really diverse experience, and so a lot of stuff to talk about. Give us a TLDR of your career and kind of how you got here today in the world of product management. Yeah, well, uh, I started my career in a very different area of finance. Uh, so I studied uh, finance at the University of Florida and began my career in investment banking here in San Francisco and realized I actually wanted to be building things rather than analyzing things that other people were building. Uh, so I ended up uh, leaving finance and started my own company back in Florida with a couple of friends. And we were trying to build something like an open table for clothing stores. Um, after about a year and a half and a lot of learnings, uh, we shut that down. And I came back to San Francisco and joined a startup called Life360, uh, which is like a location sharing app for families. And I joined Life360 to focus uh, on project management at the intersection of customer support, engineering, product, QA. And uh, that's really where I got my first exposure to product management and became friends with their first PM who had also been a founder of a startup uh, uh, before that. And then uh, Life360 just raised this very large $50 million Series C like a month after I joined. And all of the new PM openings were for people with a lot more experience as product managers with about four or five years of experience. So I needed to go a little bit earlier stage to get into product management, uh, which is when I found a company called Breeze. And one of our mutual friends, Troy, actually introduced me to the founders of Breeze. Um, and Breeze was offering Toyota Priuses to people that drive for Uber and Lyft and wanted a car to be able to, uh, to, to make that extra income on the side. And I joined Breeze when it had about 60 people. It was a Series A company. And I joined as their first PM to lead a fleet management tool development project uh, to scale the fleet of cars. About a year after I joined, Ford acquired Breeze. And we took a lot of that fleet management technology and the team and spun up a new business called Canvas at Ford. And Canvas was more of a direct-to-consumer uh, car rental alternative to ownership option. So um, I stayed about two years after the acquisition. And then uh, while we were growing Canvas under Ford, we started using this cool, uh, cool new tool called Abstract to manage our design files. And I ended up falling in love with Abstract and uh, became a regular feedback giver to their team. And ultimately, Abstract opened their first PM opening. Um, and I, I hopped on board and joined Abstract uh, uh, two years after the acquisition. And I focused at Abstract primarily on collaboration between product managers, engineers, and designers in the whole design workflow space. And uh, that was a really exciting opportunity. Uh, learned a lot. 
And then um, most recently, uh, left abstract early 2020, uh, right before the COVID pandemic, and uh, did consulting for a few months and then landed at Facebook uh, in June of 2020. So I've been at Facebook for about uh, nine months now and uh, primarily focusing here at Facebook on scaling personalized guidance for small business advertisers, which uh, is really exciting today um, to help small businesses. Um, and then along the way, I also started a mindfulness app called Breathe uh, with one of my uh, colleagues from Life360, which we worked on for about five years. And it was uh, before Apple released their app called Breathe. We uh, A year earlier, we released an app called Breathe that did something very similar and uh, helped people uh, remember to take deep breaths throughout the day. So uh, kind of like a fun side project we did as well. So there's a lot of different things there that you've done. Would I be wrong to say that you didn't have it all planned out exactly like this? Or is this kind of the vision from the start? No, no, there's no grand plan at place. So I think you'd be entirely right. And I think it's important. Um, it's important to zigzag, I think, in your career, if you think you're uh, going into a direction that's not exactly uh, feeling like it's a long term path. So I think I've um, potentially jumped around a bit. But also, uh, I think the benefit of that is that I never stayed with something that didn't feel right for too long. Yeah, I love that you found a product that you really enjoyed using, gave feedback, and then ended up becoming a product manager for that product. It's you know you went from user to owner of the product, which is you know when it comes to a product manager, understanding your customer is so important that that's one of the best ways to do it. Uh, I think that's a cool story. Hey Ben, um, one thing you just mentioned that I find very interesting doesn't feel right moving on to sort of the next thing when something doesn't feel right. How, how do you navigate that? What, what sort of criteria do you use to evaluate when something doesn't feel right, when it might be right to move to something different? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a little bit of a, of a feeling. Uh, I think that if you feel, so for example, in, uh, in finance, um, the investment banking track, uh, it, you know, I like to ask myself, if I do a great job, um, where does it take me? And I think that when I was in investment banking, the answer to that question was, well, that's going to take me to get promotions and ultimately maybe be uh, you know, like a managing director at an investment bank. And I looked around at all of the managing directors that I'd been working with and even the people on the way, you know, like the VPs or the directors or the associates, like kind of the, those milestones along the way, which would be maybe 20 years worth of promotions. And um, a lot of people didn't seem happy. And they were making a lot of money, but it didn't seem like as you moved up, you uh, seemed to get a lot more fulfillment or happiness um, or lifestyle benefits for, other than money um, from that, that, that path. And that's kind of when the alarm bells started going off for me that this was a path that if I did a great job on, it still wouldn't take me somewhere good. Um, so that was kind of an example of, of what I mean. I felt like I was getting deeper into something that was going to be harder to get out of later. Whereas maybe a lot of other people felt like uh, they knew they were going to get out later, but maybe they didn't feel the kind of urgency um, that I felt. So when you were doing, I guess, when you're doing investment banking, um, were there any skills that you took along with you to your, your first job um, in, in the world of tech? Uh, I mean, did any, how much of that translated and, and was it a big shock making that transition? Yeah. So the first role after the iBanking was as a founder, and that was uh, chaotic as I don't know if I, uh, either of you have, have started companies, but 
there's not quite a skill set that prepares you globally as a founder. Um, but I think that building financial models was one of the main things that I did as an investment banking analyst. So just being, um, we used to have like competitions uh, in, in the office and as tr uh, when we were training around kind of like, um, he would give you this set of like 20 changes that you had to make to this like really big spreadsheet. And we would like race to see who could do it the fastest using the keyboard shortcuts and stuff like that. This is such a financial <laughs> yeah. thing. Uh, so that that's, I, I became extremely fluent in like Excel and financial models and spreadsheets. And that still serves me today. You know, we just did our road mapping uh, at Facebook for this half. And I ran our, our target setting uh, process for, for the team by just building these like models that looked kind of like financial models, but were more based on kind of like impact estimate. So that still serves me today. Um, and then the work ethic, you know, I think um, investment bankers work like 80 hours a week, 90 hours a week. So I started my career just like grinding really hard and not having any life outside of work. Um, so now I feel like I can always just like turn that on when I need to. Sometimes I work a little bit longer, but for the most part, um, I think it instilled a, a good work ethic in me too. It's interesting you say that because I came from a management consulting background and I had a very, very, I, I, th I feel like I would have answered the question almost identically, which was I did it for about a year, year and a half. I had this moment of like, man, I do not really like what I'm seeing down the path. But the things that I took from it were very much that analytical rigor, that ability to tell a story and persuade people, that work ethic and sort of recognition of what I'm capable of. And so, you know, on one hand, would it have been nicer to get into PM immediately? Sure. On the other hand, you really learn from that and sort of the journey that you take, I think, prepares you to be a PM. So um, now you're working at Facebook, and I know in the past you had told me you're, you're kind of working, I think, on the advertising side. W what is it that you're doing now at Facebook? Yeah, my team. So Facebook has millions of small businesses that are using its tools um, for free, like pages, groups, um, people that are just building their audiences and getting their ideas out there without paying any money. And then there's uh, people that start spending on Facebook to increase their reach and their ability to connect with their audience. And, um, and one day these companies can get very big, you know, like Nike's and uh, Amazon's and wishes, wish.com's of the world. Um, so my team focuses on the advertisers that are not quite the, the large ones, but also not the ones that are just using the free products. So that long tail of millions of small businesses that are using Facebook's uh, marketing tools to increase their ability to connect with their audience. And we're focused on helping those advertisers connect with um, marketing experts who uh, Facebook uh, employs through our network of call centers that can help them make the most out of their spend on Facebook. So my team at a high level, uh, we focus on building tools for those marketing experts. Uh, you can think of those as internal tools, but we also build things directly for advertisers that make sure that they understand that there's help available if, uh, if they'd find it beneficial. So the users, who are the users of the product that you're building at Facebook then? Yeah. So like I mentioned, we have some uh, internal tools that we build and the users for that would be these marketing experts that work in call centers. And then the uh, users of what we're building on the advertiser facing side would be advertisers. So um, yeah, like people in charge of marketing budgets. But for the most part, if you think of your local mom and pop uh, pizza parlor, if they're trying to run ads on Facebook and maybe spend 
um, $500 a month or $1,000 a month. Those could be examples of users uh, that, that are uh, speaking with marketing experts. But you could also think of uh, larger, uh, maybe like a, a store on Etsy or a store that on Shopify that is trying to build a following and sell their products online. They could be spending a few thousand dollars a month on, uh, on ads. And uh, those are people who are going to be connecting with marketing experts as well. And the truth is that Facebook has built a very powerful set of advertising tools. And a lot of people who are busy running their businesses throughout the day just don't have the time to become savvy users of these very powerful tools. So we've created these programs to help people who have businesses to run not need to become experts in our tools and try to help them get a faster route to what they need. That's really cool. I actually, when I first started working at Google, I was working on AdWords Express, AdWords, very similar, you know, call centers uh, where people called in and got help from experts. Um, pretty cool to see that Facebook's doing that too. A question I have about customers here is, you talk about like two customers who are, you know, related in terms of like the end goal of what you're trying to get out of them or what they're trying to help people do, which is um, promote their businesses online, advertise, uh, but still two very distinct customer personas, right? On one hand, these are uh, subject matter experts sitting in call centers who are trying to, you know, help people be successful with Facebook's products. On the other hand, you've got small and medium businesses You've also worked with a number of different styles and segments of customers. You know, at Breeze, it was very much focused on car rentals. Uh, at Abstract, you were focused on workflows for designers. How do you think about like what's consistent about learning about the needs of your customers um, and, and how you go about solving those needs? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think it boils down to one of the ground truths, uh, as I see it, about being a product manager, which is um, the, the job is a prerequisite for being a successful PM in, in my experience is really tuning in to the people that you're building something for and what their problems are. And I think if, um, if you take the time to get to know the people that are using the tool, trying to understand what their pain points are with the, with the experience today, um, and what the pain points were that led them to use your product in the first place. I think you're going to start forming some kind of narrative in your head for how you might better serve them moving forward. So for Life360, you know, the pain point is a lot of people um, get worried when they don't know where their significant other is or where their kids are or where their parents are. So they built a, a product that helps solve that problem. And then there became another problem, which is, why do I have to text someone every time I'm leaving work to tell them I just left work? Why can't I just automate that? Um, and so they created this thing called place alerts and um, everything has evolved from there. And now there's this very robust driver analytics product that makes your parents know whether their kids are driving safely or not. Um, and I think that whole thing has to do with peace of mind. And I think, so if you're going to work at life through 60, you really need to tune into that at breeze. The problem was that people needed a way to make money on the side, but there is a very uh, kind of like high bar for the type of car that you needed to drive for Uber and Lyft. So people needed a car that met the criteria, but they also needed the flexibility um, to give it back when they were done doing that job. So we, we needed to tune into that. At Abstract, the problem was that, man, if you were using sketch files to do design work and coordinating with other designers, potentially around the same surfaces pre-abstract, and this is pre-Figma as well, 
then you were uploading files to Dropbox and downloading those files to your computer. You're trying to use name like file names to figure out what version you are working on versus what version the other people are working on. And then if God forbid either of you touched the same artboard or the same page and made or changed uh, shared symbols, you were having to have this like meeting in a room to pull up your your files and try to do a literally side by side comparison of who did who changed what so that you guys could merge it into a single master file. Um, Abstract solved that whole problem by just taking what Git, what, what engineers have had with Git forever and bringing that to designers. So Abstract is like GitHub for designers. Um, there's like a branch commit merge flow there. One of the themes that Mark and I have noticed is at these large companies, a lot of information really is sort of tribal and a big challenge that you have, given that teams are so distributed, is how do you get a common understanding among people? Do you have any techniques or tools that you use to go from you know, tidbits that you learn through uh, UX research or talking to customers and then actually go to make those more formal and share them and have them be inputs? It sounds like you do some of that at Facebook. Yeah, at Facebook, there the the PM role is less about trying to get into the weeds of the exact problems that users are having and try to like popularize those. The PMs they kind of work at a little bit of a higher level of um, Zoom. So PMs are focused on the team and the space and the team strategy and kind of the overarching approach to to the ecosystem. And we really do look to the individual user experience researchers, uh, designers, p- uh, product marketing managers, oftentimes, to kind of uh, go out and socialize the, the specific problems that people are having. So I don't actually have that responsibility here in my job to kind of uh, beat the drum of the, the exact problems that people are having, but rather themes of problems. Um, and the way to build up the awareness of themes around problems is primarily done uh, by going to talk to other teams and doing presentations, we have a deck that my team uh, that I put together for our team that just summarizes the, the the high level challenges that we see in the space and what we're focused on. So kind of calling out specific areas where my team's looking to make an impact. Um, and then we find other teams that are focused on those problems too. And we, we find very specific ways to collaborate. So a little bit of a hand wavy answer for you, but the truth is that it's a very different way of doing this than other companies that I worked at. At Abstract, for example, uh, when there were very specific problems that I uncovered through research, I would do a write-up, share it on Slack, and then um, I, I usually had recordings as well that I would use, and I would kind of assign like an impact estimate to that, be like, hey, this is something that keeps coming up. I think it's a huge problem. We should probably solve this sooner than later. That's not something I have to do in my my role currently. There's a lot more delegation. So... Ben, you brought up something that I, I want to rant on really quickly because I've seen this a lot and um, it's it's bothered me. And there's a lot of uh, duplication when it comes to uh, user research and asking users what they're what they're doing or getting into their world, especially in large companies. And it, while understanding your customer, I think is the number one job of a product manager. Uh, at the same time, duplicating that work. Uh, and not sharing it broadly kind of leads to a lot of wasted effort. And, and I see this a lot just because, you know, there's m- maybe sometimes multiple teams talking to the same customer and understanding their problems. Uh, and, and sometimes it's even noise customers. And so I think there's a, a, something to be said around the company's effectiveness in sharing the user experience within the company 
and making sure that that knowledge and those insights are kind of broadly understood by everybody. Um, for instance, how do PMs keep notes of, of their customer discussions and how do they share notes? And are, how are the insights actually brought out of those notes so that they can maybe be turned into data or at least become visible across you know, many PMs so that they're not taking notes on the same kinds of topics? And I, I don't know whether you've seen this, but this is something that I, there's definitely a balance between getting really close to your customer and, and living you know, inside their world and, and using the um, tribal knowledge of your organization, making sure that tribal knowledge is actually getting spread amongst everybody. Yeah, it's a really good point. And it's, a, it's something I saw myself in, in past jobs. You know, I, historically, I took a much more hands-on approach to research, both, both at Canvas and at Abstract. And um, at the end of the day, so first of all, uh, neither of those roles, we had dedicated researchers. So it was always a question of like, who's going to do the research? And I think if you're a PM and you think something is risky and you want to de-risk it uh, and everyone's busy, then it's kind of on you, I think, to figure out how to get the signal that you need by doing research. Now that I have researchers on my team, the question is, well, should I do the research or are there higher impact things that I can be doing, higher leverage activities? And at Facebook, I don't get credit for doing things that are um, kind of like very in the weeds. There's kind of, uh, this is something also unique about Facebook is there's this culture of needing to demonstrate very clear impact across uh, very specific performance axes based on your role and your level. Um, and at my level and in my role as a PM, I don't really get a lot of credit for doing user research. I get a lot more credit for doing things like uh, getting the team strategy lined up, figuring out the two-year vision, driving partnerships with other teams, uh, making sure my team has very smooth uh, team health and uh, execution for the, that we hit our goals. Um, so there's kind of like much higher level things that I have to be focusing on because no one else on the team is focused on those things. Uh, so that kind of speaks a little bit to how Facebook structures things. And then we do depend on our user experience researchers to coordinate with other researchers from other teams to avoid reinventing the wheel. So if someone else did the exact kind of research that we're thinking about doing, it's an expectation of our researchers and my team that they'll build the relationships with the other researchers in the space uh, both to popularize and publish and socialize what they learn through the research that we drive, but also make sure that we can leverage the research that these other teams are doing. It's interesting how strategic your role is and how you're describing it. Uh, I'm sure that's not always the case for every PM function at Facebook, but what is one lesson that you've learned while operating in a team like this? I would say it really needs to boil down to prioritizing problems, not solutions. So uh, I think there's, there's, you know, as a PM, you're gonna, you're at the cross, uh, the cross sections of people talking to customers, executives, designers, um, business people, finance people, people coming from other companies in your space. You're gonna be surrounded by people that think they know what needs to be built, and uh, even engineers on your team um, have a tendency to slip into saying like, we just need to build this. Um, and I think that it's so easy to just uh, fall into that trap uh, of just, we need to build this, we need to build this, we need to build this. And then before you know it, you're just cranking out a bunch of things. Um, and after a while, you lose sight of why you're building those things and where it's all heading and how are you evaluating different things you could build? And um, 
for me, I think the it's it's a dead end way of thinking, or at least it's not a way that energizes me, and it doesn't scale, um, in my opinion, to making the biggest possible impact. So the alternative to that way of working is to prioritize problems. And when someone comes to you and wants to build something, there's an additional question you ask them, which is like, what problem does that solve? And if someone can't articulate a problem, you pretty much say, well, come back to me when you have a problem. And you do that with everyone. So it's kind of like a thing that you just get everyone thinking, okay, if I'm going to go to Ben and I'm going to say, I I think we should build this, I need to be prepared to talk about what problem this solves. And if I can't talk about the problem it solves, I'm not going to bother. And after you get that in place and everyone's thinking in terms of problems and then planning comes around or road mapping, we literally start by creating a giant spreadsheet of this last half, we had like 50 problem statements. Um, we did that first. So our entire roadmap is the artifact that came out uh, two months after the initial um, exercise of identifi- identifying all the problems that we're aware of and then uh, scoring those problems based on like, how impactful would it be if we solved this problem? How confident are we that that problem would have that impact if we solved it? Um, and then you build this entire DNA, this like rigor in your team around thinking about we solve problems. And when people come into you and ask for stuff, it's kind of like, oh, like this person didn't get the memo yet. Like this team doesn't just build stuff. This team solves problems. So I think that's kind of um, a tip that, that I've learned over time. And honestly, it becomes more and more true the, the further I get in my career. And also one of those things that just gets a lot of other problems taken care of by doing it well. So it requires discipline. It's definitely not easy. It's going to get pushback from people who are convinced that they know exactly what you need to build. Um, but again, you have to stay super, um, super rigorous in evaluating the problems. Problems-based road mapping. Tell me about how that works. How do you actually get that done? How's that different than what like other people maybe expect a road mapping process to look like? So if you tell everyone on your team, we're going to focus on solving problems next half, no one's going to disagree with you, right? Um, then people are going to say, okay, uh, it's time to do road mapping. Which problems, which projects are we going to build? Like what's going to make it on the roadmap, right? So people have a very quick tendency to, uh, to nod and agree that they want to solve problems. But then when it actually comes time to do the, the logistics of road mapping, people generally fall back to projects because they have preconceived notions about one, how it's been done in the past, which is just like a build a bunch of stuff. And two, people always have preconceived notions about what they think is coming next because there's a bunch of conversations about, hey, we, we have no doubt. Like, there's kind of like a implied sequencing of things you're going to build and before you know it if you just fall into that trap you you just build stuff that you think you're going to build because you think you're going to supposed to build it and then before you know it you've lost track of what problem you're trying to solve in the first place so it's it's not a tenant um it's it's not a sustainable way of building product at least it's not an exciting way of building product in my opinion so if people agree that they want to start with problems then they're going to look to you to make that happen. So at Facebook, the PM is literally driving road mapping. So if I wasn't thinking about prioritizing problems, uh, we probably wouldn't be prioritizing problems the way that we did it this half. So the reason we did this half is because I created the framework that allowed us to do that. And the framework is pretty simple. Um, you create a, I created a Google Doc that literally had a detailed, here's what's going to happen for the next two months. 
and it had bullet points week by week. Here's what's going to happen every single week between now and the end of road mapping. And For here's the road mapping process. What's right. that? It's this a road mapping process. You're outlining the road mapping process. Correct. Yeah. So how do you yeah. figure out what those problems are? I mean, are marketing experts coming to you and saying, hey, I have this problem? Uh, you know, are other people coming to you and saying, hey, when I was at my last company, we like had this cool product. Can you build that too? Like, how do these things actually get on your list? So we, we get a lot of input from our business partners. We have kind of like internal consulting arms. Excuse me. There's like, it's like an internal, internal consulting team that is trying to think of how to improve the efficiency of the call centers. They work with our business partners who are ultimately kind of like the revenue organizational structures that are responsible for all the output from, from the call centers. So there's a lot of people who are focusing on the operations of these call centers. It's a very busy space and they ultimately can't build things on their own. So they need to go to product teams like ours or other teams of engineers to get things built. Um, and they do this as um, leading up to the road mapping process. There's this list of like over a hundred different things that the business thinks need to be built. And then they go and find, like they try to find teams that will help them build these things. And any of the things like, you know, over time, okay, this thing is getting built by that team. This thing's getting built by that team. And there's things that left over that no other teams have committed to. So the business tries to like scramble to find who's going to build them. And our thoughts are, you know, we know who we serve. We serve these marketing experts. Um, we are supposed to, do the most meaningful, impactful things for those marketing experts. So if there's a pro if there's something that comes in from the business that's not quite a problem statement, we ask our PMMs uh, to translate the incoming feature request or project request into a problem statement and put it on our spreadsheet. I mean, it takes a lot of time to align with people. So having those people whose full-time job is to make sure that these communication, the information is flowing the right way in both directions is really helpful. Um, and if there's something that's coming from the business that cannot be compiled into a problem, we tell them it's not making it to the spreadsheet. So um, like you can't even get on our roadmap unless what you're asking for can be turned into a problem statement. Um, so I tell them, hey, like any problem you bring in, this is supposed to be a comprehensive list. If it sounds like a problem, let's put it on there and we'll, we'll score it. But if you can't articulate the problem, they can articulate the problem. I can articulate the problem. It's not making it on the list. So we're not going to yeah. go after it. I'll say one thing, which is I think that the way that you're doing it in which you're being very transparent about here's what we're planning, our problems, and you're being transparent to your downstream customers, which often I see roadmap planning is like an internal thing that it's like the, the, the teams, like for instance, in enterprise, the field sales teams are not usually part of the roadmap planning process or have input directly into it, in, indirectly. But it sounds like in your case, it's very direct that they are, you're kind of getting those inputs and they're seeing how things are prioritized in which it's probably a little bit easier to be, you know, several levels removed from the customer because there's visibility on both sides for the people that are, you know, impacted by the roadmap and the people that are building the roadmap. Yeah, it also sounds like the setup that you have if I were to put myself in the shoes of PMM, you're not just trying to take a fully baked product to market. You are actually, you know, the voice of the customer, making sure that problems are well understood, making sure that the product team is working on the things that address users' needs, which is really dope. It was like a therapy session. <laughs> no, uh, for real. I mean, I think, you know, when Mark and I talked about doing this podcast, it was 
we're going to get to talk to interesting people. Maybe we'll learn some cool stuff that will kind of affect how we go, you know, about like doing our jobs too. Um, a lot of food for thought here. So um, thank you. I think this has been great. Ben, I appreciate you coming on the show. I, I learned a lot. Very interesting listening about all the different um, types of companies you've worked for and different PM experience you've had. So thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Ben. And that's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to the Go to Market podcast. We'll catch you next time.